Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Barbara Kay. Now, those of you who are from Canada will recognize her name almost immediately, as she is one of the very few interesting Canadian columnists left. Over the past several years, we've seen a sort of chilling effect over journalism and over column writing, especially as the number of opinions someone is allowed to articulate has grown steadily smaller. It's grown increasingly difficult to critique the new gender ideology, for example, or to say anything socially conservative in general without getting shouted and booed out of editorial rooms. We know that at a lot of different newsrooms, you have young, woke employees that demand uh, that, you know, conservative columnists, conservative writers who have been around for decades, or liberal writers who simply still hold views that are uh, considered classically liberal to themselves, but are now considered unacceptable, essentially be forced off of the platform. And Barbara Kay is one of those liberals who stayed liberal while almost everybody else shifted further left and went progressive. She has interesting views on almost everything. She's almost impossible to fit into any box. She spent the last several years pushing back against the transgender agenda. Her most recent column in the National Post is is on gender and is once again dedicated to triggering the sorts of people who find that There is now new dogmas and new heresies, and in many cases, we've simply switched places. So Barbara Kay agreed to come on and have a conversation about the state of media in general, about column writing, about her long career in publishing here in Canada, on many of her most controversial opinions, and what she thinks the future looks like. This is that conversation. So the first question would be, how did you get involved in in commentary and writing and in journalism? Well, I always had a background in um, interpretive uh, writing because I was an English uh, major and I I have a master's in uh, English literature, which involves obviously uh, interpretive literary commentary and a lot of essay writing and a lot of you know, uh, critical thinking. I taught for many years, uh, composition and writing. So my my writing skills, I was always a competent writer uh, in the slightly academic vein. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a tremendous uh, shift to move those skills into uh, journalistic style polemics uh, in, in opinionating. And what got me uh, interested in journalism was uh, living in Quebec uh, through two referenda. I'm from Toronto originally, but the, but I lived through the most uh, tumultuous period of Quebec's modern history. And uh, by the time of the second ref, uh, the second referendum in 1995, I had gone from being not what you would call a politicized person. I mean, somebody mm. who's very aware, attentive, a reader, um, interested but not myself, an activist, too uh, very much engaged with the whole uh, Quebec political scene and very much an activist, obviously, uh, on the no side of the, <laughs> of the separatists' uh, referendum. And I did start to write then for a small magazine um, that had originally been founded by uh, Pierre Trudeau and some of his allies, uh, in the 60s, and it was called Cité Libre, which originally was only in French. Uh, and then under the direction of two editors, bilingual editors, uh, became a bilingual magazine for a while. And it was uh, totally dedicated to the anti-separatist movement. Uh, and although not read by many people, it was read by a lot of politicians. Uh, so it sort of punched above its weight. And I was... Mm really thrilled to be published. Uh, There are some really top-notch writers and thinkers engaged with that magazine. So that gave me a taste for it. Then the National Post started in 1999. Um, Was it 98 or I think 98? Anyways, and my son at the time, who was a a lawyer, a tax lawyer in New York, uh, auditioned for and got a spot on the very first uh, editorial board. 
And so that was a big shock to our family. He had, he'd always loved writing, but you know, he'd had this career very oriented to uh, first uh, engineering and then law. And, and he just established himself and, you know, with a great job in New York. And suddenly he announced I'm, I'm becoming a journalist. And one of the, galvanizing aspects of that change in his life was oh my gosh you mean you can just become a journalist without special training or special <laughs> education or you know it, it was sort of a shock to me to realize that you could you could sort of transfer skills that you'd built up mm-hmm. in in another area and just go into journalism so that was that was my that gave me the impetus to see if I could branch out from the Quebec scene, which was very narrow and very focused. I did receive encouragement when I submitted my first uh, stuff. Everybody thinks it was my son that got me going there, but in fact, he, he was not in a position to do that. Uh, And he, all he did was tell me who to send my stuff to. And I did and yada, yada, you know, Uh, so 2003, there I am, uh, I now have a, a career at the age of 60. <laughs> uh, so that's that's my story. So what developed uh, your views over the years? Because you, you, you're kind of like a, a classical liberal, which would now be considered wildly conservative. But like I'm only 32, and I remember when that wasn't considered wildly conservative. So that wasn't all that long ago. How did your views develop? Well, I think I, I, I was very much uh, typical of my generation. Uh, I went to university in the early 60s. I, uh, I, yes, I was a classical liberal. I, I, did, I mean, it all made very reasonable sense to me. Uh, rights of the individual, not the group. Um, everybody's equal under the law. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. All those things seemed to me no brainers. I never even thought of my, I I never thought to define myself politically because I was what every reasonable person I knew was. Um, And besides uh, at university where I I was very lucky uh, to be one of the relatively few women who have both the opportunity, the motivation and the encouragement to go to university to a great university, university of Toronto um, at a time when the universities were expanding um, at a very rapid pace. So they were spending tons of money on getting really high caliber um, academic professionals from England and abroad, wherever they had to come from, they were paying a lot. So I had the benefit of uh, phenomenal teachers and um, in an honors course uh, that was considered, you know, very high status. And, and, there, I had the kind of professors who were extremely demanding. Uh, they, they, they were. They expected uh, when you wrote an essay, for example, they'd sit down with you after and they'd say, "This is crap." You know, like I mean, there was no. They didn't weren't concerned about your feelings or anything else. It was like, um, "Look, you start with this uh, introductory statement. Where's your evidence? You, you know, you then bring in this, and it's a bad analogy." Like they go through it with you. And they'd say, you got to do better than this. This is sloppy. And, and where's the scholarship here? Where's the... So over four years, I, I learned how to think critically. That was their goal. They didn't tell us what to think. I, I never had a single professor whose politics I was aware of or made to be aware of, or I never knew what their personal opinions on morality or or uh, social justice. We, there was no such thing as that then, just justice. justice. <laughs> but their subject was their subject. You know, we, we looked at literature, not in terms of deconstruction and mm. power imbalance and all that jazz that was going, theory uh, that was going to come later. We looked at it as literature. Um, what, what was it saying? What did it reflect about its age? I learned history through literature um and we didn't have gender politics then um it was it's actually just you know i was on the cusp just before feminism was making its breakthrough so my entire education was pre-feminism very heavy emphasis on on learning critical thinking skills and uh, uh classic liberalism as the prevailing uh cultural environment and I stuck with it. So yeah. I'm now an anomaly, but I 
I'm very comfortable in my own skin um, with what I, I haven't, I haven't seen any improvement on what I learned, you know, in, in, in terms of all the ideologies that have come along. I see, I see a lot of problems with all of them. I, and I think I, in a way I, I, I came to my own um, young maturity uh, at a time of peak rationality in public life. Well, it's very interesting because I, I I was actually taking an English minor. I did a history major, then an English minor at Simon Fraser University. I ended up dropping the minor because all they were doing was taking works of literature that I loved and ruining them. There was no exploration of the human experience and the human psyche. It was it was all there was always an oppressor. You know, you know Jane Jane, Jane Austen's characters were always beaten down rather than triumphant, and the whole thing just got to be exhausting. So I just I dropped the minor and just did a double major. What are some of the things that you saw starting to happen after your education with with these different ideologies and the impact they had on the culture that have started to change the conversation now? Because to me, yeah, I went to a left wing university, but you know, I went to SFU, so you you know you get what you pay for. Um, it wasn't any mystery about uh, about uh, SFU's ideological leanings, but things. I was in, I graduated from university uh, ten years ago this month. And things are extraordinarily different on campuses just in those past 10 years, much less uh, than in the time you've been observing them. When I left university was exactly the moment when the counterculture was was kind of brewing. At, at Berkeley, at places in the United States, it was already happening. And, and you could feel it coming in the Canadian universities. But I was at that point already married and my my interests were already um, off campus more than on in graduate school. And so I did not get involved in campus life uh, in any political sense. Uh, The first, my first awareness of the big thing was feminism. And I did take notice of that. And I did, um, I was very aware of uh, uh, this sort of revolutionary spirit brewing. And at first, you know, feminism, appealed in the sense that it was a kind of reform movement that I thought, oh yeah, well that makes sense. You know, you, women need more legal rights. Women um, should have the right to uh, choose whether they want to have family. I mean, I, th- those were all perfectly reasonable demands in the first years of feminism, but I, n- I never bought into the tremendous depth of um, anger. You know, I remember reading Betty Friedan, this whole idea that women lived in concentration camps, you know, domestic concentration camps. It says, oh, give me a break, Betty. You know, uh, here was, um, uh, she was somebody from my own cultural background. She was, you know, Jewish, except she was very left-wing. I wasn't, okay. She went to university. Uh, She was not herself in any concentration camp. She was a Marxist. Uh, uh, She ruled her household with an iron fist, I understand. Um, so I, 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 uh, I thought, well, the leaders of this movement, uh, I'm skeptical um, of what they're saying simply because they're talking about other women. They're not talking about themselves. Um, and I began to see that, first of all, it was a very white middle class movement, the feminist movement. It was not coming up from below. It was not a grassroots movement. It was it was uh, began in the academy and pretty well remained there for a very long time. And certainly the ideology remained in the academy. And, that, and most women did not sign on to a lot of the precepts and the doctrines. Uh, so I was skeptical from the beginning because I, I had not experienced in my own, well, my lived experience. Um, I had grown up in what was supposed to be the patriarchy, but I had been encouraged by my father. I was one of three sisters and my, their expectations were very high that we would do well in school, we would go to university, um, we would achieve something in life that we, you know, um, I remember my older sister was encouraged to become a lawyer because she had, you know, she was, she liked uh, arguing and she was uh, very bright. And very, I was a very early believer in the idea that your cultural uh, environment and the values that you grow up with are more important than uh, politics or any ideas of patriarchy or any of the big grand ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not how people live. They don't live by grand ideas. They, they grow up in households and, and they take in by osmosis 
um, the kind of self-respect they're going to have. I mean, when I looked around at the women I knew, Jewish women in middle-class households, I didn't see downtrodden concentration camp victims. I saw strong, very strong, powerful women who ruled their domestic scene with uh, great assurance uh, and who were deferred to domestic. It's true they had their own domain, but in that domain, they were doing tremendous amounts of volunteer work. Uh, they were, uh, you know, charities. They, uh, they had study groups. They were, they were educating themselves in all kinds of ways. They had high expectations for their children. You know, I, I myself did not feel downtrodden by men. I, I admired, I had good men in my life. I admired them. I was encouraged by them. So this whole idea I never uh, experienced in my own um, social environment attitudes by the boys that I grew up with, uh, these supposedly, you know, hostile, toxic, all that jazz. I, I, since I didn't experience it, I had to wonder, well, why am I not experiencing this? And this is supposedly a universal precept. And then I said, well, no, I can see that at some places there is such a thing as patriarchy and other places, not so much. Very, very dependent on individual uh, enclaves and clusters, uh, cultural clusters. Feminism taught me to be skeptical and to analyze, uh, you know, who's in charge of the ideology and what's their, you know, is there another agenda? And of course, uh, there is another agenda with feminism, a Marxist agenda. And I'm very, one of, one of the, I, I should say that one of the great um, influences in my growing up was the Cold War. So that was one thing, although I was not political in, a, in, a, in an activist sense, I was very politicized and scared and horrified by <clears throat> the effects of Marxism on societies. Uh, I was very conscious of uh, life in the Soviet Union, what it was like. It was very scared about the bomb, you know, and, and uh, all these were very big influences in my life. So I was, I was, I was already very uh, antithetical to anything that smacked of a Marxist ideological base and pretty well everything that we're discussing now or that has come out of and that you experienced is, is, is because of uh, Marxism that permeates uh, all the ideologies that we're currently living with. It's interesting that you, you bring up the Cold War because for so many writers of your generation that I've spoken with, they, they constantly refer to it. Uh, not a lot of people my age have read Whitaker Chambers, but back in the day, people like him were, were, and, and Solzhenitsyn were profoundly uh, influential. One of the interesting things I once read that I wanted to ask you about, Peter Hitchens said once in a very uh, – uh, uh, and the sort of calm that he writes when he's trying to get everybody's hackles up, he wrote uh, that he misses the Berlin Wall because when the Berlin Wall was up, communism was trapped behind it. But since it's down and the left no longer has to defend the evil empire, they can pretend it never existed. And essentially they can start repromulgating all of these ideologies as if they've never been tried and seek to have them tried once again. What are your thoughts on that based on what you see? What, what an interesting contrast to Christopher. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah I, I think he's right about that. I, I, uh, when you have grown up with something that is so immediate, or even, you know, just having the Holocaust uh, having happened in your lifetime. Um, I mean, I was a child, but I, I was very, very aware of that. And, and then you see, as you get older, what for you were overwhelmingly present uh, and dangerous uh, situations that you feel, well, uh, nobody will ever forget this. And, the, and this will change the course of humanity. This will, you know... And then you gradually, over your same lifetime, you see the, the, these dangers receding from memory. You see uh, the lies that, that start coming out because even though they're very well documented, uh, one of the things about ideology in general is its tendency to airbrush the past and to say, since everything was wrong in the past, uh, we're starting fresh. We don't need the past. We don't need history to teach us anything. Uh, because we're creating the new man, you know, uh, that was the mistake of Marxism to begin with. And, and it's being repeated uh, because the the Soviet example and the Maoist examples, uh, so horrendous in their time, the numbers, the sheer numbers have been airbrushed out. And I, I, I'm 
constantly pinching myself to say, what, what are these people mm. drinking, you know, to, to talk about uh, socialism, real socialism, um, as a benign uh, kind of system that is actually going to perfect society. Uh, we've been there. We did that. And it was horrible, horrible. So yeah, I, I think the Berlin Wall, when, when it was up, it didn't let us forget. Uh, coming down, um, it opened the door to uh, a, a kind of deformation of the past. A lot of times the the past is denied to such an extent, it, it, it kind of feels like we're all being gaslit. Um, and, and, and you see this dissension even on the left. So, you know, you've got guys dressed in black shirts beating people up on the streets and calling themselves anti-fascist. Like, it's so bold, it's almost intentional. You have, you know, Barack Obama saying, don't say defund the police, we don't want to do that. And then immediately he's responded by the squad, like, what are you talking about? No, we absolutely do. So you have some people saying the quiet part out loud. You have other more moderate left-wingers saying, no, like, you know, that's that's too far for us. But also the extent to which what was once such so, such normal perspective is now considered to be so radical and so horrifying, which I know you've experienced yourself, but like Rex Murphy, who's sort of like this Canadian icon and has been around forever, um, he he trends on Twitter every time he writes a column, like every single time. Now, just I, I don't even have to check the National Post for when his column comes out because he's just trending on Twitter. I'm like, oh, Rex's new column must you know be out and I'll go over and read him. This guy was on CBC for decades, right? He's just a... And it's crazy to me at age 32 to see what has become accept unacceptable in just the last 10 years. And so when you look at your writing career starting at the National Post until now, what are some of the major shifts you've identified in your ability to speak your mind and how difficult it's been? And some of the, the ways in which newsrooms seem to be constantly subjected to these struggle sessions where editors are apologizing to, to, to staff wokelings. It's, it's just very strange. It is very strange. When I look back over the 20 years I've been writing for the National Post, of course, uh, the the whole idea of staffers telling management or editorial uh, what they're allowed to say is was is so bizarre. Um, and it would, would never have entered my mind that this would be a possibility. Uh, it's only in the last uh, 10 years that all the, all the students that were, were, you know, having all this ideological junk downloaded into them and told uh, it's no longer enough to just understand uh, the power system and the oppressor, you know, oppressed system. You have to be an activist. And if you're not an activist, uh, then you're not, uh, then you're a part of the system. You're part of the bad system. So they've been trained to be missionaries and uh, sent out into the world. And now we're seeing the result of that indoctrination and that training, recruitment and training. I mean, all the uh, most of the humanities and anything that ends in ology practically in the universities is, is uh, they're basically recruitment channels to, uh, to send armies uh, out into the world and infiltrate, you know, the long march through the institutions. It's, it, it's happened. It's, it's a successful, uh, it's a successful takeover of the in institutions. And, and uh, then you get uh, these young people who actually think it's their duty um, to stand up and tell their employers where they're going wrong and what they have to do. And, and uh, this is racist and that's no good. And this one needs to be canceled and that, that, so that would never have entered my head in my wildest dreams to tell an employer, you know, in my day, you didn't like what your employer was doing. You, you quit and you went to work for an employer that you, you know, that you wanted to work for, uh, but you didn't tell them what to do. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's already happened. So I would say that what has changed for me personally is that I used to, I look back over some of my old columns um, and I was free to say uh, a lot of things about um, Islamism, gender stuff, feminism, uh, rape culture, all that stuff. I, I said what I felt was true and not true. And so what got me into trouble in the last couple of years uh, was an ideology that I have to say is more, more, successful more quickly and more with more um, ability to uh, to dictate its terms. Uh, that's the trans ideology. And so for the last couple of years, when I write about gender, it's caused a certain, well, you know, tension. Um, and that built up and built up uh, until finally this in this, you know, and I've been writing more and more about it because it has become a dominant cultural 
um, trend, you know, where it used to be uh, civil rights for gay people and uh, gay marriage. And then it was um, now uh, gays are, you know, they're old fashioned. Uh, they're not in the picture. It's all about trends. So every time I, I, I've been writing about trans in the last year or two, I've no, I know I started noticing that there was tension uh, in in the editorial section that my columns were being held up. They were having to go through several layers of editorial. Um, sometimes they were getting spiked. That's not a good feeling for a journalist to get spiked. It shouldn't happen very often. Uh, it started to happen with kind of regularity. And at one point I just said, I'm feeling very insecure about everything that I write now. Uh, and I'm nervous about whether this is going to pass or that, so that you can't write with joy in those circumstances. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I had a good run, right? I was there for 20 years and I'm, mm -hmm. uh, I'm a certain age and, uh, it's no shame to retire from, you know, that this is, I don't, I'd rather walk away before I'm asked to leave. And I got the impression uh, falsely as it happened that I my job was in question or my my I'm a freelancer so that my um my tenure there was in question and and maybe I you know I should have approached them to talk about it but I was afraid that if I brought it up that might that might be the the provocation that they needed to so I you know I a combination of my own paranoia and their failure to say hey we've been spiking your columns uh, let's talk about that. And let me, you know, let me explain uh, the, the kind of tensions that we're experiencing uh, at the moment, but that didn't happen either. So I walked away and that did spark a discussion with management. I had, I had very productive discussions with management, with, with higher up editorial. And uh, they explained, Hey, you know, we went through some bad times, just like most of the other newspapers did the New York times and all these other cancel culture newspapers where editors have been let go for a headline that didn't appeal to, you know, staffers. Uh, so th there's just been a lot of turmoil in, in the media business uh, based in uh, activism uh, in, in the ranks, in the rank and file. And um, they said, we're going to do something about that. And if we do, I, we hope you'll come back. I said, if you do, and if I feel free to write the way I've been writing in the past, then I, I would be happy to come back. I feel it's my home and I, I love it. And, and that's what happened. Uh, so now I, I feel my old sense of comfort. Um, and they really have uh, returned to brand. They, they had an editorial on it. Um, so uh, yeah, there was a, there was a moment there where more than a moment where I think people felt, and it was Rex, as you say, Rex, mm -hmm. <laughs> Rex isn't on Twitter. That's probably mm -hmm. why he feels free to write. About it. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Probably. Yeah, no, no, I'm sure. I, you know, he doesn't, he's, he's got a, a wonderful total lack of um, awareness mm -hmm. of what you can and can't say. Mm -hmm. People who are on Twitter, whether they fret or, or disagree with with the kind of um, oppression that Twitter exercises on you, and whether they fight back or not, we're all of us that are on Twitter extremely aware of what will get us harassed on Twitter and what won't. And that does have an effect. It's interesting mm -hmm. because that does have an effect on yeah, your yeah. writing in the sense that you're you're looking for a word. Ooh, if I use that word, that's that's not going to fly well. So Rex is totally oblivious to all that, which I think is good for his writing. And he'll say things like, there's no systemic racism in Canada. He doesn't, mm -hmm. he doesn't understand that the word systemic racism don't mean... Systemic and then racism. Well, it's, it's code for you, you have to say there's systemic racism or you are a racist. You know, the, like he doesn't understand the rules of the game, which are not, we didn't make them and we don't like them, but... A lot of people think these are now entrenched rules, right? If you're not on Twitter and you're a great writer like Rex is, you know, you just blithely carry on. Um, and because his readership is huge and people love him, the ordinary people, not the woke people, um, the newspaper can afford to let him rip, you know. Mm -hmm. um, he's, you know, it's like J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. Uh, people, it doesn't matter how many people 
uh, disparage her or how many people in her publishing house, you know, don't want her published. Uh, she's too big to fail and she's too big to be canceled. She pays a price. She pays a psychological price for, uh, you know, the mobbing that she's subjected to. But so Rex in his own way is a, mm-hmm. you know, in his slightly minor way is, is, is that kind of a figure. So I have to walk a certain line. One of the questions I really wanted to ask you, especially about the way Canada has been presented, is that so the history books I grew up reading um, had sort of good and evil narrative arcs, right? So the story of of Jim Crow would be told, uh, and then the culmination of the book would be, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, and you know, the you know the Civil Rights Act of of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you know, and, and progress was always viewed as you know these these this, these vast number of interminable steps towards slowly and but surely becoming better uh that we aren't where we should be but we're not where we were that you know we're not yet perfect but we're not as bad as we were 50 years ago that we're consistently fixing things changing things um and that was true for both Canada and the United States. I remember because um, because I took a history degree, Indigenous studies is always a pretty healthy uh, part of that. It's mandatory in Canadian universities. And, and the one class I don't regret taking was with with Gwen Point, who was the uh, the wife of of Canada uh, BC's Lieutenant General at the time, and she took us to an abandoned. Uh, a residential school. We went, you know, in the basement where they would like lock kids up for punishment. And this thing was closed in the eighties, right? Very, very recently. And so, all of that being true, what I, what I, I have a hard time understanding about my generation and younger, because I'm a millennial, so Gen Z coming up would be it would be a big part of this as well. Is the extent to which the narrative has now changed? The narrative now is we're thoroughly evil, and we we, we have to burn it all down. And we, if you point out that things aren't as bad now as they were 25 years ago, if you point out that things are bad on on some reserves, there are there are injustices that need to be rectified. But the residential schools have been closed down and apologized for, for example, you know that segregation is universally frowned upon. That things that used to be common in the culture are now universally considered to be wicked. Like the Overton window has shifted definitively on many issues for the better. But to say that is to be denying our own wickedness to some extent. And it's it, it, it's it's been kind of bewildering to see the extent to which defending Canada, which used to be a Canadian pastime, for example, is pretty likely to get get you called out as a racist or a person of privilege, et cetera, et cetera. What is your take on how all of this has developed? Well, I, I agree with you that uh, I, I think that narrative happens to be true. The fact that, yeah, uh, our... Uh, ancestors, our forefathers, did crappy things uh, to people they considered inferior. That was the uh, prevailing idea that there was, you know, uh, and and racism is a thing. But uh, there has also been progress made, great progress, uh, because enlightenment may come slowly, but it comes surely, and it has come. And uh, you know, you don't get official. Uh, civil rights acts in countries where there is no progress or where there's no idea of progress. So if you can't accept that maybe things will never be as perfect as you want them to be, but that they are becoming better, then you won't make further progress. I mean, who's going to want to make progress if they're, who's going to even want to engage um, if, if you're told you are inherently an evil person by being, you know, first of all, I, this whole idea that people that, come from other places are part of the whole settler group. I mean, my grandparents escaped persecution in, in, in Europe and came here. I've never had anything to do with this, you know, the residential schools. Like I, I mean, I, I, I can, I can look at them objectively and say, Oh, they maybe should have rethought that one, but I'm not going to accept guilt for it. I just don't. And so if you don't, um, then you are one of the bad people because you refuse to recognize your inherent. So when you start talking about inherent guilt um, because of the color of your skin or be, because uh, you're of your non-Aboriginal status or anything like that, you lose me. I, and I think you lose most rational people um, who, who just aren't going to accept uh, you labeling them that. So yeah, there has been progress. And by the way, 
one thing you're not allowed to say, or one of the many things you're not allowed to say, and why I sort of lost interest. 20 years ago, I wrote a column about how indigenous peoples, uh, Phil Fontaine, do you remember that name? Yes. Okay, so he was a chief that compared indigenous peoples to the Jews. And he said they were, you know, uh, they were in exile and they were, uh, you know, he, he made it, he, he made a few analogies to the history of the Jews. And I wrote a column saying, okay, that's, that's sort of an interesting analogy. How did the Jews survive and how did they thrive? And the, and I was able to write a column that suggested there has to be a way to make ind- indigenous culture portable. The reason the Jews survived was because they had a constitution. They had their Torah. It was written down. Mm-hmm. They had literacy. And they were able to live in exile, in the diaspora, with no, no help, no financial help, no nothing, no encouragement. In fact, a lot of discouragement. They were able to stay united and um, to uh, not to slip into dysfunction because they had their their culture was able to be transferred from one place to another, and they even though they retained their uh, their attachment to a sacred territory to a sacred place israel it was they were they didn't they had to leave it and they didn't get sovereignty over that territory back for two thousand years so I said if you are if you have to be on the land that you consider sacred in order to maintain your culture and if it is it's not tenable to be on that land and thrive then you have a problem that can't be fixed by money or by other people you have to make your culture somehow portable so that you can live off the land in other places and not fall apart so i was able to express that opinion do you think i could write that today no, you know I could not. I no. couldn't. But it was it was not written without compassion. But it was written with a sense that, well, this problem is not entirely on the shoulders of of the settler class or whoever you want to call us. This there, there has to be some responsibility taken by the group itself, by the culture itself that is failing to thrive in their sacred places without life support all the time and plenty of it from outside. Uh, so I can't say that now, and but, but I do believe that. So I don't write about it. So right. that's one of the effects of, you know, of this whole idea of, of, uh, of where we are now as compared to where we were then. One of the things that you've been writing about that most columnists are desperately avoiding, though, is the gender issue. And I know that you have a book on this coming out, and I and I hope to join us again when it does come out. Um, with the emergence of this this gender identity issue, what 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 did you first notice about this that it was dangerous? Because I think in Canada, you've probably been one of the most consistent columnists writing for a major broadsheet. Um, that covers that covers this issue and, and and very very incisively and critically as well. Thank you. Well, I what I noticed was that first of all, it, it was dealing with very young children, and there seemed to be a fascination uh, with what goes on in children's minds. That has I noticed before the trans. All right, before the trans thing came along, mm-hmm. I already was very uncomfortable with a lot of what was happening in sex education. It was starting uh, concepts uh, that I thought were far too um, advanced, were uh, being taught as part of the curriculum younger and younger and younger. And these were, uh, these were components of curricula that were designed by um, gay activists at that at that time it wasn't trans it was gay um, that wanted that wanted young children to be very aware of concepts of sexuality in before I think they were ready to talk about that or to be interested in that like they would have grade one kids talking about uh, homosexual love but you can't talk about homosexual love unless you already understand what sexual desire is. Grade one children should not be taught in groups 
about sexual desire because they're they're not that's they're not prepared for that they're that they're in a latency period that's not their interest and and i found the impulse to wish to be talking to children about this stuff had a component that i identify as voyeurism and the same impulse was i started writing about things like you know how universities have sex weeks oh yeah yeah okay well you're probably for you that's oh yeah that's routine well it wasn't routine when i first started writing about it it was quite uh i remember yale started yale had a sex week Mm -hmm. and had all the students in auditoriums and they were having people come and talk about bondage and sadomasochism and they had um prostitutes come and talk about sex toys and what they liked and what they, blah, 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 and yeah nathan nathan harden wrote a book about this oh he? yeah yeah, yeah. Got, that's, i recognize that name okay and i thought man this is this is kind of sick these kids are at university and the university is sponsoring this and they're giving them like time off from lectures and everything to go to the auditoria and listen to all this stuff. And I thought, these are supposed to be adults, like 18-year-olds. There's something orgiistic about people in groups that are being exposed to titillating sexual material. They had porn stuff. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were watching porn. And the, the whole idea was, oh, this is a learning experience. But in fact, it was, it was getting young people in groups to watch porn as a titillating thing. They had um, professors. It was very, very, maybe they're not doing it so much anymore. Maybe that was a little fad that disappeared. They were having, uh, I remember there was one professor at Dawson University here who was having his students act out something that was um, transgressive. And one student got an A because they defecated into a garbage pail in front of the other student. I mean, there was a whole trend there uh, towards transgressive sexual activity that was presented to groups. Uh, And this had its apex to me in, um, there was a traveling exhibition called the sex, the sex exhibit or something like that, that was going from city to city. It was government funded and kids as young as 12 were being taken to it as part of their school excursions. And they had stuff in that uh, sex exhibition that was really quite unsuitable, I considered, for 12-year-olds to be watching in groups. And I, I stress in groups because there's nothing wrong with children who are very young learning a lot about biology and reproduction and sex and everything else in private with a counselor or a or parent or an older, you know, someone who is responsible and sits down. It's an intimate situation and they learn privately. When you're learning in a group, mm-hmm. it's a very different dynamic. So, for example, in that sex exhibition, there was a, a video that had line drawings of young, a young man and a young woman or teenagers masturbating, as if this is something that children have to learn how to do because, you know, for 10,000 years of recorded human history, they didn't know how. So, you know, they never learned because they didn't have this video, you know, I'm I'm kibitzing because mm-hmm. the whole idea that you need to teach human beings how to masturbate is so stupid uh, as if that's not something that like, hello, you, the one thing you don't need to learn how to do is how to, well, there's breathing, there's eating, there's drinking, and there's masturbating. I mean, you know, that's something people figure out. Um, so there was, so there, there was a, this sex ed thing, a sex ex- exhibition thing with the line drawings. Now, in my mind, I saw the teacher with the, with the children, and they're all standing watching this thing. But there's also strangers walking around. And now I'm picturing an adult male sidling over to watch the 12-year-olds watching the masturbatory video. And I said to myself, it all to me it was all together with the sex ed week and the whole thing. This is a very pagan impulse voyeurism you know you read about these you know the the uh the old pagan dances around the fire and then uh-huh. and, and the drums and the drums and the drums and then the writhing and the and the, you know uh you see that in in, in certain videos like dancing uh, uh there's some of the some of the stuff you cardi b and all that 
all right. I don't want to go off on that tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Stop me, stop me. Um, So I wrote a column about that because it made me sick. I mean, well, not really, but I mean, it made me mentally sick to think that that teachers want, why are they so eager to expose these kids to giant phalluses and like in a group? It's weird. It's weird. It is weird. No, it's, it's worse than weird though. It's, it's adults to me, that have a kind of fetishistic and voyeuristic interest in watching children, not the sex act itself, but you're watching a mental activity, uh, like a kind of virgin uh, experience for these kids as they see stuff they've not been exposed to before. Although I have to say by the age of 12, I understand that most kids have been watching porn you know, um, since age nine now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's quite normal now, but I, that's something I didn't know then, but I thought there, that, that teachers and schools should not be contributing to that particular kind of culture. Um, so I wrote about that. And then I, so I was kind of in a way prepared for the trans thing, right? Because right. it's sort of the same impulse. It's adults that want to get into children's heads and manipulate their, their views of their own body their own genitals, particularly the genitals, they're very fixated on a child's genitals, and they're very fixated on uh, working with a child to make that child come alive to ideas that they are very, they're very incoherent to them, but it has to do with their body, their sexuality, their this, their that. It's an invasion. It's a voyeuristic invasion of a child's mind that I find repellent. Um, uh, there's a, a pathology that is is attached to this obsession with gender, and um, I think we're going to look back on this whole thing with a sense of wonderment that we allowed people with serious pathological tendencies to be writing the rules for what is taught in school, what you can and cannot say, uh, and, and all the rest. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, there's something really uh, quite disturbing that's going on there. It's interesting you say that because Anthony Eslin, who's one of the most incisive cultural commentators, his book Out of the Ashes is just phenomenal. He actually said, the more somebody wants to teach kids about sex, the less I want that person doing it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, to want to do that, I you know I remember when my I, I was gearing up to teach my own children about you know, sec, I'm not a prude, but my own sense of modesty. Mm-hmm. Talk about this with my own children. Obviously, you have to at some point, and you explain and all that. But I also wanted them to have their own sense of sexual modesty. And interesting, I guess that's something that you that kids pick up in the home. Because they are, their children are, it comes very naturally to them. And that, I think, is what the healthy thing is. And we're constantly being told that if you're reticent to talk about your own body, your own sex, you know, your own whatever, then then that's unhealthy. If you have any, if you have any sense of privacy, it's a bad exactly. thing. Yeah, the whole idea of privacy or intimacy or, well, this is something that you should discuss with one person. No, no, no. With with the class, with the world, with the videos, with the you know, and and uh, and here's where uh, if you can't draw the line between what is obviously meant to be private with what is clearly not meant to be shared in the public domain, and it's all just you have no boundaries, then you're a person who I think I'd want to not be dealing with my kid, anyways, or grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that's not healthy. That's not healthy. And by the way, when you said what brought you into journalism and everything else, I, I think I, what for me, when I'm drawn to a topic and I say, how come this topic excites me? And the other one is, yeah, I could write about that, but it, it'll be, it won't be joyful to write about that. I say to myself, it's always the same. It always comes back to the same thing. What is it that makes a society healthy? And what makes it unhealthy? What makes a neighborhood a good place to live, and what makes it a less 
attractive neighborhood to live in. And, and it gets right down to what's a good family, what's not a, mm-hmm. like, you can start with, with the lowest common denominator, work right up to the biggest, to, the, to, to what makes a country a healthy country. And right now there's a lot of unhealthy trends. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what attracts me. And it's almost always a cultural or social mm-hmm. aspect. So I've taken a lot of your time. So I'll ask you one final question. What does your book cover? Uh, I should say it's Linda Blade's book. The, uh, mm-hmm. She is the actual writer. Uh, Linda Blade is a former Olympian uh, level uh, heptathlete who uh, has been a longtime coach of both men and women in sport. She has a PhD in kinesiology, which is a form of biology. And she is one of, I think, the only sports coach in Canada who is actively speaking out against uh, male bodies in female sports. Um, That, of course, uh, is not only the trend, that is official policy in Canada. uh, And uh, I encouraged her. We, we, I helped her start her kind of journalistic career by writing some mm-hmm. um, some uh, op-eds on the subject, and we formed a friendship and a, and a good feeling of working together uh, in the writing end. And I said, "What if we? What if you wrote a book, and I could help you with it editorially, and 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 you know contribute brainstorming and all that?" And she jumped on it, and um, so our our book is uh, now with the publisher and. It's a short book. It's called Unsporting, <laughs> uh, how trans activism and science denial are uh, destroying sport. Uh, and it, it, it is basically the invasion of women's, it's, it, it, it's all sport is suffering from it, but the focus is on uh, the invasion of women's sports by trans, trans women whose male bodies uh, have an advantage that is so extreme uh, in, and especially in elite sports, that uh, very it, it just isn't possible for women to um, to enjoy a level playing field, and that's what it's about. Well, I look forward to reading it. And Barbara, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's my pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Canadian columnist Barbara Kay, who writes for the National Post. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And if you want to check out past shows or subscribe to get the show delivered to you weekly, please head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab where you can, again, check out past interviews and sign up to get the new interviews that we have coming out weekly delivered directly to you. We really do appreciate you taking the time to join us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.